As you look back through all of world history, in many ways you could say that it has been a tale of two cities. The two cities are Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon has been man's city, and Jerusalem has been God's city. In 2 Chronicles 6.6, 6, the Lord said, Yet I have chosen Jerusalem, that my name may be there. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem as his city. But this is not just a thing of the past, because Zechariah 2.12 says, And the Lord will take possession of Judah as his inheritance in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the Lord's city. And someday, one day, the spiritual and political character of the city will finally match the meaning of its name. Jerusalem means literally city of peace. And someday it will be a city of peace because all of the people there will be at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be at peace with one another. As you probably know, often the city of Jerusalem is called in Scripture Mount Zion. It's just a, another name, a synonym for Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Psalm 125.1 says, Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. Jerusalem will abide forever because it is the Lord's city. Obviously, it will go through a number of changes with the tribulation period, the kingdom, and then with the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem as the capital city, but it is the Lord's city. Man's city, on the other hand, is Babylon. Man's city began all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. Let's turn there as we begin our time together in the Word of God. We'll go from the first book of the Bible by way of introduction to the last book of the Bible by focus. Genesis chapter 11. If you are familiar with this story, my guess is that if I were to ask you to tell me what this chapter is about, at least the opening part, you would say, and in fact the little note in my Bible, the little a uh, note leading into the paragraph says the Tower of Babel. That's what almost everyone refers to when looking at Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. But let's read the first nine verses, and you will see that maybe that's not the best summary of these verses. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, 
literally confusion or Babylon, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. As I was hinting a moment ago, unfortunately, we often miss the significance of this passage because we focus so much on the tower. We talk about this as the Tower of Babel. But the emphasis of this passage is not on a tower. The word tower occurs twice in this passage, but the word city occurs three times in this passage. The emphasis of these verses is on the city the people were building, and the tower was just a part of the city. The tower was to be a monument to their city and to their accomplishments. But the true issue in this story is what the people say in verse 4 when they say they want to build this city containing a tower as a monument, and they're doing this because they want to make a name for themselves. Babylon is the symbol of humanity united against God. It is fascinating to realize that this story is preceded in chapter 10, preceded by and followed by, as chapter 11 unfolds, a genealogy of Shem. The Hebrew word Shem means name. As we see in chapter 12, the very next chapter of this book, God's plan was to choose Abraham and make his name great, and through him to bless the world. But the rebellious people of Babylon wanted their own plan. They had their own idea. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to do things their own way. So God confounded and confused their plans, and the name of their city was called, we usually say Babel, or literally Babylon. That's why the Bible uses that word as a symbol of humanity united against God. And that is the way the word is used in the text we come to in Revelation chapter 18. So turn there with me from the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible. Because here is where Genesis, Genesis 11 culminates and ends, if you will. Revelation chapter 18. Babylon refers to the entire economic political, and religious system of the end times. It is, once again, humanity united against God. In Revelation chapter 17, we are told about the destruction of religious Babylon. And here in chapter 18, we are told about the destruction of political-slash-economic Babylon. As I've mentioned in the last few studies, the way the term Babylon is used in these two chapters seems to depict both a city and a system. This is very similar to the way we use the word or the term Wall Street or Madison Avenue. Both of those are actual streets, but they also stand for the financial or advertising enterprises. Everyone in America knows what you mean when you say Wall Street or Madison Avenue. Literal streets, but they have a meaning far beyond just the name of the street. In the same way, when John uses the term Babylon, he is referring to a literal city and he is referring to the religious, political, and commercial enterprises represented 
by the anti-God system of the end times. As I've already stated a few times over the last few weeks, in 1986, before his death, Saddam Hussein began to rebuild ancient Babylon, which is about 50 miles south of Baghdad. So it's possible that that city will be the capital of the Antichrist empire, or it could be another city that God calls by the name Babylon because of its character. For example, in Revelation 11.8, the city of Jerusalem is called Sodom and Egypt because of its unfaithfulness and its wickedness. Now, Jerusalem is Jerusalem. But it is sometimes called by another name, by God, to portray what it is like, to describe what it is like. So it may be that the capital of the Antichrist empire will not actually be the city of Babylon in modern-day Iraq, but that it is called Babylon by God because that designation describes the character of what the city will be like. So, in summary, the Babylon referred to in Revelation 17 and 18 may be headquartered in the ancient city of Babylon, or it may not be. But the whole system is called Babylon because it will be the accomplishment of what the human race tried to do back in Genesis 11 when they tried to build the city of Babylon as a rival empire and a rival religion in place of the true God. That's what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand in chapters 17 and 18 of the book of Revelation. Now in the last message we began to consider the destruction of commercial slash political Babylon here in chapter 18. Now we come to the, the conclusion of the description. Please follow along as I read verses 9 through 24, <clears throat> which will be our focus for this message. Revelation 18, verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her. When they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble, and cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, who tra uh, every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance 
and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They throw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman or any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth. For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all who were slain on the earth. As you can see from reading through these verses, they are primarily a lament. When God destroys Babylon once and for all, the earth dwellers are going to weep and mourn and lament. So there's a sense in which this 18th chapter of the book of Revelation is a funeral dirge. It's the final funeral dirge. Those who are committed to and in love with the final anti-God system are going to mourn. But those who are on the Lord's side are going to rejoice because Babylon will be gone once and for all. As we have previously learned, the destruction of Babylon has been foretold or predicted in the book of Revelation on a couple of different occasions. For example, chapter 14, verse 8 says, And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. That announcement in chapter 14 is anticipatory. In other words, it hasn't happened at the time of chapter 14, verse 8, but it will happen. God is going to destroy the entire idolatrous system of the end times. Chapter 16, verse 19, describes part of what will happen when the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out upon the earth. It says this, Now the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. So if you're reading through the book of Revelation, before you even get to chapter 17 and 18, there are two passages in which we are told that Babylon is going to be destroyed. But no information is given in those passages about what Babylon is or why it's going to be destroyed. Chapter 17 and 18 fill in that void. In chapter 17, we are told about the destruction of religious Babylon. And in chapter 18, we are told about the destruction of political, economic commercial Babylon. Now we've already considered the destruction of religious Babylon in chapter 17. You will remember that the Antichrist and the other rulers of the world will allow this false religious system, this 
harlot church to exist for the first part of the tribulation period to unify the world, to pull the world together. But in time, they will turn on her and they will consume her. That is, they will steal from her, rob from her, take from her all of her wealth, all of her riches, all of her influence, and will destroy her. And then as we see in chapter 13, the Antichrist will demand that all the world worship him. No more religion, no more church except the worship of Antichrist. That's how it will all end for religious Babylon. She will be consumed by the Antichrist himself and the other world leaders. But the destruction of political slash economic slash commercial Babylon is going to be different. As you just saw as we read through this passage, it's going to be more cataclysmic. It's very possible that it is the earthquake of the seventh bowl of wrath that causes the destruction of commercial Babylon, and it's described in detail here in chapter 18. So with all that as background, let's consider the verses we read just a moment ago, beginning in verse 9. John tells us, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. This is the first group of mourners mentioned in this section. There will be a couple of other groups we'll see as we work our way through the passage, but the first group mentioned is the kings of the earth. So leaders of nations or world leaders. We know from the book of Daniel and from the book of Revelation that the final one world government will consist of other leaders beside the Antichrist. In fact, both Daniel and Revelation indicate that there will be ten other rulers at some point during this time. You want an interesting assignment? Just go home at some point later today or tomorrow. And just, I did this recently, just go on Google and just type in United Nations 10 zones. And you will find that for quite a while the United Nations has been talking about dividing our world into 10 zones so it will be easy to govern as a 10 zone world. It's been on the table for a long time. It's exactly what the book of Daniel talks about. Ten rulers, sub-rulers. These, these leaders will be subservient to the Antichrist, but they will be world leaders. In some way, they will be responsible for helping the Antichrist rule and administrate things, so they will be in charge of nations or regions or zones of the world. And according to what we see here, Babylon will be instrumental in making them and their nations or their zones rich in this final global economy. But we don't have to guess about God's perspective of this relationship. He refers to it here as committing fornication. The kings of the earth, the leaders of the world, will be in an intimate relationship with the anti-God Babylon, and God calls this relationship fornication. Because of their relationship, they will be able to live luxuriously. So they will weep and be in despair when they see Babylon being burned up by God. And it will be such a cataclysmic event that they will stand back in fear as they mourn. Verse 10 says, They're standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, 
that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. This is an amazing statement. The people will be lamenting instead of fearing their own impending judgment. That's how in love with this world system they will be. That's how committed to the system they will be. They will see, they will observe God's sudden and cataclysmic judgment on sinful Babylon. But rather than repent, they will lament the fact that their opportunity to continue their luxurious lifestyle is now gone. This verse raises a question, how will all the kings of the world, all over the world, see the smoke of her burning? That's what it says. They will see the smoke of their burning. How? Obviously, they'll see it on CNN or Fox News or Al Jazeera or whatever. It's not going to be hard to see it. It'll be broadcast around the world. And they will mourn and lament. But the, the rulers won't be the only group. Verse 11 says, And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her. For no one buys their merchandise anymore. This is the second group of mourners at this funeral dirge. The merchants, the businessmen and salesmen. Their source of profit is now gone. So they will also weep and mourn along with the kings or the national leaders, the world leaders. To show us how extensive this commercial system will be, Verses 12 and 13 list numerous commodities. Look at verse 12. It says, Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Let me pause here to mention something that hit me as I was reading through these verses. The implication of these verses is that in spite of all of the catastrophic judgments God will have unleashed on the earth during the tribulation period, and all you have to do is read Revelation 6, Revelation 8, Revelation 16 to see these. In spite of all of these catastrophic judgments, there will be many people on planet earth who will be carrying on with business as usual. That is amazing to me. But as I thought about it and contemplated it, it helps explain what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Go back there with me for just a moment. Back to the Gospel of Matthew. And look what Jesus had to say. This verse used to plague me and confuse me when I would read the book of Revelation and say, well, how does this, how does this work? But, but we're getting a little insight from Revelation 18, comparing it with this statement in Matthew 24. Verse 36, <clears throat> Jesus is talking about his second coming. And he says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Now, by the way, if we had time, we could back up. Jesus has already in this chapter, beginning back in verse 3, 4, all the way up through 15, 16, 17, he's been talking about the tribulation period, the abomination of desolation, all of those things. So he's been talking about all of that, and we know that at the end of the tribulation period is the second coming. The Bible is clear on that. So now Jesus pauses to say this. But of that day and hour, the second coming at the end of the tribulation period, of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also it will be, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. You see, Jesus said that people will be carrying on with life as usual when he returns. That's hard to understand in light of all the catastrophes we see in the book of Revelation. But evidently, the Antichrist will somehow explain them away and convince people to go on with life as usual. The commercial and economic system will keep right on moving. Or maybe it's possible that the Antichrist almost supernaturally helps the economy to recover after every one of these, which would be a great incentive for the people of the world to follow him. And if he could sort of undo the effects of all of these catastrophic judgments, no wonder all the world will flock to him and be willing to take his mark and follow him. Now back to the book of Revelation chapter 18. So there will be catastrophic judgments in the end time, in the, in, in the tribulation period, but there will also be in some, in many parts of the world, life as usual, marrying, giving in marriage, commercial enterprises. So Revelation 18, verse 13, continues to list all of these commodities that will be bought and sold. Notice verse 13. And cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. Hopefully that last phrase stands out to you. The bodies and souls of men. It's possibly a reference to slaves and some kind of slave trade which may be a part of Antichrist system. Very distinct possibility. Another possibility is that it is referring to prostitution and pornography because that too is trafficking in the bodies and souls of men. Whatever it is, it's part of the whole profitable system of the end times. But God is going to wipe it out. Verse 14 says, the fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. It's all gone for good. In fact, it was fascinating for me to find out that this verse contains a double, double negative in the Greek text. As I mentioned in the past, the strongest way to negate something in the Greek language is to use a double negative. A double negative is not good in English, but it's, good, it's great Greek. It's really good Greek. Well, this is not a double negative. This is a double, double negative. I don't know of any other place in the New Testament where this occurs. It may, but I'm not aware of or familiar with any other place. This is a double, double negative. So this verse says it in as emphatic a way as the Greek language is capable that all the wealth and all the merchandise and all the commodities and all the luxuries are gone for good. Gone forever. <clears throat> Verse 15 says, The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing. Again, this is hard to fathom. The merchants will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, but rather than repent so they won't face the same kind of judgment, 
They will feel sad that they can no longer stockpile the riches Babylon provided them. They ought to be weeping and wailing over their sinfulness and rebellion against God and the prospect of impending judgment. But instead, they weep and wail over the destruction of this ungodly, materialistic city and system. Verse 16, they're saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. See, all they can think about is their stuff. It's their stuff. They will be so in love with things and money and wealth and luxury that that's all they will think about when they see this city going up in smoke. It's a graphic picture of how blinding materialism can be. In fact, have you noticed that each group in this lament, now catch this, each group in this lament evaluates the disaster in terms of its own self-interest. It's all about self. It's all about self. They're totally consumed by self. Verse 17 says, as the description continues, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing, have been laid waste. God's judgment on this city will be astonishingly swift. The phrase one hour may be a literal 60-minute hour, or it may be a figure of speech referring to swiftness and suddenness. Either way, the idea is the same. This mighty commercial empire is going to come crashing down suddenly and abruptly. Verse 17 continues, Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? This is the third group of mourners mentioned in the text. The transporters. The rulers will mourn. The businessmen will mourn. The transporters will mourn. They will all be in shock and grief-stricken when they see Babylon going up in smoke. Beloved, this is, this is selfishness and greed in its most naked form. And verse 19 says, They threw dust on their heads and cried out weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. As you probably know, throwing dust on the head was an ancient way to express grief and anguish. So the transporters will be just as horrified, if not more, at the sudden desolation of Babylon. But then comes the contrast. Verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. The harlot church of the end times, the Antichrist, and the, the entire Babylonian system will ruthlessly persecute God's people during the seven-year tribulation period. We are confronted with that fact over and over again as you just work, work your way through this book. So once God wipes out the whole thing, all the saints in heaven above and on earth below are encouraged to rejoice in God's vengeance on their behalf. 
And that's exactly what will happen in the first several verses of the very next chapter, chapter 19. A great multitude will sing heavenly hallelujahs in response to the destruction of Babylon. But before that scene is described for us, God wants to emphasize again the utter destruction of this city and this system. Look at verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. A millstone was about four to five feet in diameter, one foot thick and weighing thousands of pounds. So this had to be a very mighty angel to be able to pick this up. And when this millstone was thrown into the sea, it would have disappeared almost immediately. This picture portrays the violence and the ferocity of what is going to hit Babylon when God finally judges her. It also expresses the suddenness and the immediacy of the judgment when Babylon is finally going to disappear forever. As I mentioned in the last message, it is a fact of history that Babylon has never been void of inhabitants. A city or town of one, of one type or another has always existed there. But once this final judgment hits, if it's that city in modern-day Iraq or another one called Babylon, the city will be found no more. It will disappear like a giant millstone thrown into the sea. It will be finished once and for all. Verse 22 says, The sound of harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman or any craft shall be found in you anymore. The sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. Earlier in this text we had, remember, a double, double negative. Here in this verse we have the strong double negative. In fact, the double negative, that double negative, occurs six times in verses 21 through 23 to emphasize the point strongly. None of these things shall be in Babylon ever again. It's interesting to me that this verse mentions all kinds of music and musicians because not too long ago I heard that one of the main functions of present-day Babylon in modern-day Iraq is for ceremonies, parties, weddings, those types of musical celebration events. But eventually it will all be wiped out. It will all be over. Nothing else will go on there any longer. There will be no parties, no music, no industry, no weddings, nothing. Verse 23 says, <clears throat> verse 23, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. It's interesting that the first part of this verse says, the light of a lamp shall not shine in you anymore. According to chapter 16, verse 10, when the fifth bowl of wrath is poured out, the throne of the Antichrist will become full of darkness. As a result, to have any light in the Antichrist capital city, wherever it is, 
There will need to be lamps of some kind. But once this final judgment hits, even the lamps will all be extinguished forever. At the end of this verse, it says, For by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. Antichrist and his capital will deceive the whole world into being a part of this final world system, and then God will obliterate the whole thing. The final verse of this chapter says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. This is why all of God's people are encouraged to rejoice up in verse 20. The anti-God Babylonian religious and commercial system will slaughter God's people to eradicate them from the earth. But Babylon won't be victorious. Babylon won't win. God will not forget or pass over the atrocities committed against his people by Babylon. The prayer back in chapter 6 will finally be answered. Back up there with me as we close this message. Back to chapter 6. And you'll see what I'm talking about. Chapter 6, verse 9. John tells us when the Lord Jesus, he's the one who is the focus of the he here in this verse, when he opened the fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. How did these souls get in heaven under the altar? Well, as soon as a believer dies, his or her soul immediately goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, For the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Philippians 1.23 says that when believers depart, they go to be with Christ, which is far better. There's no such thing, no such thing as soul sleep in the Bible. The soul doesn't sleep. The body does. The soul goes to be with the Lord, and the body sleeps in death to await resurrection. So John saw these souls under the altar. The fact that they were under the altar symbolizes that they have already been offered as a sacrifice. Why were they slain? Well, this verse tells us they were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They were slain because they were true and faithful witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is possible that when all the calamities of the first four seals of this chapter, uh, the, the first four seals of judgment break out upon the earth, believers will be blamed for all those calamities. That would especially be true if believers are not experiencing these judgments of God described here in the early verses of chapter 6. If God exempts believers, or if he insulates them, then undoubtedly believers will be suspect in the eyes of the rest of the world. Then the world will take out their rage on believers and martyr them. Specifically, who are these martyrs? Well, the fact that their persecutors are still alive when this seal is broken indicates that they are martyrs from the tribulation period. In many passages, besides the ones you see in the book of Revelation, the Bible teaches that believers are going to be attacked during the tribulation period. That will be taking place during the first few years of the tribulation, but it will really accelerate from the midpoint on because that's when the Antichrist breaks his treaty with Israel and demands that the whole world worship 
him. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 24, 15 to the Jewish people, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, get out of Israel. Get out of there. Verse 10 tells us that these souls cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Let me tell you something. This is a horrible thing for earth dwellers. You know why? Because when perfect believers in heaven begin to pray for God to take vengeance on you, then you're really in trouble. James 5.16 says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. If that's true, and it is, then how much more effective are the prayers of these believers who are now perfected in heaven? Undoubtedly, God will answer their prayers. So verse 11 says, Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. God rewards these dear believers with a white robe of holiness, righteousness, and purity, and he assures them that the day of vengeance is not far off. He will obliterate the people and the city and the system that slaughtered them. And it finally happens in Revelation 17 and 18 as Babylon is burned with fire and goes up in smoke. Beloved, the day is coming when God will wipe out man's city and man's system. God will violently destroy all those who have opposed him and resisted him. And he will reward those who have been faithful to him. Which city do you belong to? Which camp are you in? Let's bow together as we pray. Father, it is encouraging, though distressing, but encouraging to see this description in Revelation 18 only from the standpoint that it encourages us as a reminder that the right side will eventually win. It's so discouraging at times, life in this world, just to see sin and wickedness rampant, to see unrighteousness, ungodliness, injustice. Take the, take the, the front row and, and, and just and be first and foremost. But we're we're reminded over and over again in your word, and as we've seen in this passage, that the day is coming when all that will be stopped. All that will be overturned. All that will be reversed. When you judge the anti-God system of the last days, once and for all, you will destroy all those who have opposed you and resisted you. And you will reward those who have been faithful to you. Father, I pray that each and every one of us here in this room is in that camp, in that city, the city of those who are faithful to you until death. Grant us the grace and strength to live our lives that way. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.